What if they put on an Olympic Games and nobody showed up? I'm not talking about the 2020 Tokyo Summer Olympics. Those games have been postponed until 2021 due to the COVID pandemic. We're just gonna have to wait and see if they happen. And I'm not talking about the 1980 Moscow Summer Olympic Games either, when the United States and 64 other nations they boycotted due to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Because even with that massive boycott, that the largest boycott in Olympic history, there were still 80 nations that competed in those games. The Olympic Games are supposed to be an every four-year international gathering where athletes from all around the world, they represent both themselves and their country. Today, the Olympics are the largest regularly scheduled international event in the world. Not sporting event, but event. The largest regularly scheduled international event in the world. The whole world gathers for the Olympic Games. But in 1904, the Olympic Games were in St. Louis, Missouri, and almost nobody attended. The American organizers who hosted these games, they wanted to use the Olympics to make a, an, an us-versus-them statement. They wanted to use the games to show off American know-how and organizational brilliance to host the best Olympic Games yet. And they wanted to use the games to demonstrate American athletic superiority. But you can't do that if no one else shows up. 617 athletes participated in these 1904 St. Louis Olympic Games. 525 of those athletes represented the United States. And most of the rest, they came from just up the road in Canada. Only 10 nations sent athletes to the 1904 St. Louis Games. And the Olympic teams that most of them sent, they were small. The Austrians and the Swiss sent only two athletes each. Australia and Cuba, they sent three. But in the end, it's probably just as well that almost nobody made the trip to St. Louis in 1904. Because these Olympic Games, the first Olympic Games to be held on American soil, they were a farce. They were poorly organized and run. They were a pageant for American racism. Just wait till you hear what they did in St. Louis. And because nobody knew what they were doing, some of the competitors died. This is American Sport. And I'm your host, Professor Matt Andrews. I want to take you back to St. Louis in 1904. But let's begin by talking about the Olympic Games themselves. This global sports festival where athletes don't just compete for themselves, they represent the nation in which they live. And that's the question I want to start with. Why? Why are there national flags at the Olympics? You know, if you grew up watching the Olympic Games, national flags and anthems, they seem as natural and as necessary as the Olympic torch and the events themselves. But the flags don't need to be there. In fact, I'm going to argue that they shouldn't be there. And let me be straight with you right now. I'm actually not sure I believe this argument, but I'm going to make it anyway. And I make it to get us to imagine what the Olympic Games might have been, very easily could have been, rather than what they are. Here's what I mean. Here comes about 3,000 years of sports history in just a couple of minutes, but don't worry, this is going to go down easy. The modern Olympic Games were created in 1894 through the energies of a young, fit, brilliantly mustachioed French aristocrat, the Baron Pierre de Coubertin. 
And I'm serious about the mustache. Find a photograph of when Coubertin was a young man. It looks like two biceps doing curls with barbells. It's amazing. Anyway, so I just told you that Coubertin and his mustache, they created the modern Olympic Games in 1894. Though it's really more accurate to say that Coubertin revived the Olympic Games. He revived the ancient Olympic Games. What we now call the ancient Olympic Games, they began in 776 BC. They ran to 393 AD. They occurred every four years without exception, a mind-boggling run of almost 1,200 years. But then they went away. They were destroyed by the Christian Roman emperors who were troubled by the game's pagan and hedonistic attributes, not to mention the fact that the ancient Olympians, they competed naked with their bodies slathered in olive oil. That's a story for a different day. Let's go back to the 1890s. The modern Olympic movement was created in 1894 through the energies of the French aristocrat, the Baron Pierre de Coubertin. All right. Coubertin was a French physical educator who was influenced by an idea from England. The idea that competitive sports built men of good, sound character. Coubertin thought that his fellow Frenchmen were physically weak. And so he encouraged his countrymen to adopt the sporting ways of the English, to play their sports. So Coubertin was a French nationalist. He wanted to use sports to literally strengthen his country and his countrymen. But Coubertin was also thinking bigger than this. He wanted to create an athletic festival that would promote international cooperation throughout the West. He wanted to use sports to bring nations closer together, to heal the wounds of past conflicts and wars. So in 1894, Coubertin sent out invitations. And 78 men, representing a dozen different European nations and the United States, they gathered in 1894 at the Sorbonne in Paris for a gathering called a Congress on the Revival of the Olympic Games. This is where and when the modern Olympics will be born. Coubertin, he gave a lengthy speech and he told these men of his plan for a great international athletic festival, a modern Olympic Games, an athletic festival that like the ancient Olympic Games would occur every four years. This sports festival, it would rotate among the cultural capitals of the world. Coubertin was mainly thinking Europe when he said this. This would not be sports just for the sake of sports. There was, in his mind, a much more noble purpose for these games. I'm going to quote from the good Baron. This is the money quote. Coubertin stood before the Congress and said this. It is clear that the telegraph, the railways, the telephone, the passionate research in science, congresses, and exhibitions have done more for peace than any treaty of diplomatic convention. I hope that athletics will do even more. Let us export rowers, runners, and fencers. They are the free trade of the future. And the day the Olympics are introduced within the walls of old Europe, the cause of peace will have received a new and mighty stay. Let me suggest something here. The establishment of the modern Olympic Games needs to be understood in the wider context of what we now call globalization. The late 19th century, it was an era of greater and growing connectivity and intermingling between different people around the world. And as many saw it, the international community was at an important juncture 
Because of technology and communication and developments in travel, the world was a more dangerous place as armies could gather information and now move swiftly around the globe. But this was also a time of unparalleled possibility, a time when these developments in communication and travel and this interconnectivity, it could foster mutual understanding. And this athletic festival that Coubertin had in mind, it would do the latter, he believed. He hoped. Men, and it was all men at first, men who play sports with each other, no matter their differences, Coubertin thought, they will develop a healthy respect for each other. That's the idea. This idea of international understanding and peace through sports, this is the central idea of the Olympic Games. This is the idea that will soon be known as Olympism. Competition in sports breeds mutual respect and understanding. This is Olympism. And I think this is interesting because immediately you have a paradox or at least a tension at the Olympic Games. Coubertin and the organization that he created, the International Olympic Committee, they decided right away on some ground rules. They decided that unlike in ancient Greece, for example, the athletes would wear clothes. Sensible, I think. But much more importantly, they decided that individuals had to compete as representatives of nations. They had to represent and wear a flag. By Coubertin's own words, the Olympics were created to ease global tensions. But by ruling that athletes had to represent a nation, one could argue that the games, they don't bring global harmony. They exacerbate and, and feed on international tensions. You root for your nation and thus against others. Let's play a game here. Imagine this. You are watching an Olympic swimming contest. All of the competitors, they, they get to the starting blocks and they're introduced. One of them is introduced as an American. I don't know, maybe his name is Michael Phelps. You also live in the United States. So what do you do? Well, you probably root for the American. But why? I mean, maybe that guy introduced as an American is not a nice guy. Maybe you have way more in common with the guy who was introduced as an Italian or a Brazilian or a Korean. Maybe you have the same political views, you like the same music, whatever. But what do you do? And now I'm being provocative here, but what do you do? What do we do? Well, what we do is we narrow-mindedly play into the hands of our political leaders by identifying with and rooting for the American. Rather than thinking as human beings and picking our favorite in the race for any number of personal, meaningful reasons, we simply root for the person in our tribe. And I chose that word purposefully because it is tribalism. And so I submit for the sake of argument that the Olympics would be better they would be more pure and more in line with Coubertin's original goal of global harmony if the games countered these nationalist ideas. They would be better if athletes competed as individuals rather than as representatives of made-up nations. You know, what if, instead of the parade of nations, where everyone is forced to identify with one of these made-up political entities, there was the parade of athletes, where the, the shot putters of the world entered the stadium together, and then came the swimmers, and then the gymnasts, and so on and so forth. 
I think that would be pretty cool. All these different body types lumped together. But to my point, this would be an athletic statement of diversity and togetherness. I mean, this would truly be a statement of us. But in this instance, there would be no them, everyone together. Whenever I make this suggestion, most people look at me like I'm crazy, which may be true. But I do think that this decision that athletes have to represent nations, I think that decision works to contradict Coubertin's idea that sports can be used to bring the people of the world together. Look, there is no doubt in my mind that this insistence on athletes representing nations, it increases interest in the Olympic Games. But hey, wars are interesting too, right? All right, that was a cheap shot. But I'm sure you get my point by now. Sports are interesting, but it's the pull and the power of nationalism that often makes them really interesting. The Olympic Games work because they indulge precisely what they claim to transcend, the world's basest instinct for tribalism. So, from the very start... The Olympics were a nationalist event. Athletes had to represent nations. And more than any other nation, it was the Americans, the United States, who seized on the Olympic Games as a place where they could make statements about national strength. The first modern Olympic Games were in 1896. Remember, in 1896, the United States was only 120 years old. And so for a, a relatively young nation, looking to take its place among the world powers. The Olympic Games held immense promise. This is where American greatness could be broadcast. The first of these modern Olympic Games took place in Athens, Greece in 1896. This was fitting as this was essentially the site of the ancient Olympics. The United States sent 14 athletes to these first modern Olympic Games. Almost all of them, upper-class men who had the time and the means to travel to Athens. They came from the elite Eastern colleges, places like Harvard and Yale, and the Eastern private athletic clubs. They participated in events like wrestling, cycling, swimming, shooting, gymnastics, and track and field. And the United States did well. American athletes won 11 gold medals, which was the most from any nation, though the Greeks won the most medals overall. There's a trend. In the early Olympics, the host nation usually won the most medals because they had by far the most athletes in attendance. But the Greeks and the representatives from other nations, they were aghast at the behavior of the American spectators who were there. They, they commented on the constant disruptive noises coming from a group of American sailors who were in attendance. Sis, boom, ba, these young Americans like to chant. This is the, the precursor to that ubiquitous chant, USA, USA. The official Olympic report of these games, it actually referred to the quote, absurd shouts coming from the American fans. A French newspaper reporter, he described the American fans as overgrown children. The Americans, it seemed, were getting a little too riled up. Perhaps they were taking this a little too seriously. Four years later, the second modern Olympic Games, they were in Paris, Pierre de Coubertin's hometown. There were crazy events at these 1900 Paris Games. There was hot air balloon racing. There was firefighting in which competitors raced to put out man-made fires. There was a fishing contest, 
and there was pigeon shooting. And by pigeon shooting, I mean the shooting of actual live birds, though they weren't alive by the end. Maybe the most notable event for the Americans was the marathon. The marathon course, it it wound confusingly through the streets of Paris. Many of the runners got lost. And two American runners who were certain they were in the lead, they were stunned when they crossed the finish line and were told that two Frenchmen had beat them there. The two Americans, well, they accused the French runners of cheating by taking shortcuts. No one actually knows. But as bad as this was, let's go to 1904. At the turn of the 20th century, the Olympic movement began and it was building momentum. And then in 1904, the Olympics crashed and burned. The Baron Coubertin, he was interested in having the games in the United States. He had once traveled to the United States and he was very impressed with the thriving college sports culture here. And Coubertin wanted the scope of the Olympic games to grow. The first two games had been in Europe, but now it was time to go to a different continent. It all made the United States a pretty sensible choice as host nation for the 1904 Olympics. And the specific choice that the men in the International Olympic Committee made for 1904 was Chicago. In 1901, the IOC awarded the Olympic Games to Chicago. Chicago was selected because of the influence of an American sports businessman named Albert Spaulding. Spaulding was a baseball team owner. He owned a team called the Chicago White Stockings. Spaulding was the dominant force behind professional baseball's National League. And Spaulding owned a sporting goods company, Spaulding Sporting Goods. You have likely heard of it. Spaulding thought that hosting the Olympic Games in his home city of Chicago would be a great way to spread his brand, the brand of Spaulding Sporting Goods. So he lobbied the IOC, and the IOC said, let's do it. Let's go to Chicago. But these Olympic Games never happened in Chicago. And that's because of a World's Fair that was going on in St. Louis. There was going to be, in 1903, a Louisiana Purchase Centennial Exposition. This was a World's Fair that would celebrate the Louisiana Purchase, the United States purchase of a giant swath of land from the French in 1803, a purchase that instantly doubled the size of the United States. But then the organizers of the St. Louis Exposition, originally scheduled for 1903, they announced that they weren't ready and they were gonna have to postpone for a year. Our fair will take place in 1904, they said. And so now there would be a clash, a clash with the Chicago Olympics that same summer. Two massive events competing for spectators with each other. Well, they were actually a little behind in starting to construct their Olympic stadium in Chicago. And now faced with competition from a World's Fair, in Chicago, they said, screw it, we're going to pass on the games. The Louisiana Purchase Fair organizers in St. Louis, well, they jumped at this. They they told the IOC they would be happy to take over. They said, we will make the Olympic Games part of this fair. They can be sporting events associated with our exposition. Coubertin was not pleased. He had wanted the big city of Chicago to host his games. St. Louis was, in his words, a mediocre town. He didn't want his games to be an appendage to a fair, like a a pie-eating contest. Plus, this was a fair that was celebrating one of the great land swindles of all time, a deal in which his France got the short end of the stick. 
No, Kubertan was not happy, but he had no other options. It was late, and someone had to host the games, so they went to St. Louis. Do you know that Judy Garland movie or the song, Meet Me in St. Louis? It's about Americans going to this St. Louis exposition in 1904. But you know who wasn't there? Kubertan. Kubertan, the head of the IOC, he did not even attend the St. Louis Games of 1904. And this set the pattern for what was to come. As I told you earlier, 617 athletes participated in these Olympic Games. But 525 of them were from the United States, and most of the rest, they were from Canada. There was no French, Italian, or Scandinavian presence whatsoever. St. Louis was just too far for athletes from the rest of the world to journey to. It was much too far from a major ocean port. So here's what these 1904 games were, and here's how the American press wrote about them. These games were not described as an international athletic competition, no. These Olympic games were understood as a contest between Americans, Americans who represented different cities and regions. One of the stars of the games, the American Archie Hahn, he was a tremendous sprinter, he later described the 1904 games like this. There was not much of an international flavor to the games. It was largely a meet between American athletic clubs. I ran for the Milwaukee Athletic Club, and I never gave any real thought that I was representing the United States of America. That insistence coming from the IOC that athletes represent nations, that rule was largely ignored in 1904 because there just weren't enough athletes from other nations. So the American Olympic organizers, they were looking for ways to spice up their games, to increase interest in these games that had suddenly lost their international flair. And here's what they came up with. And I warn you, it ain't pretty. The guy who was running the 1904 St. Louis Olympic Games was an American named James Sullivan. Sullivan is a really important figure in the history of American sports. He was one of the driving forces behind the creation of the AAU, the Amateur Athletic Union. The AAU still very much exists today. In fact, there's an award given out every year to the nation's top amateur athlete. It's called the Sullivan Award. It's named after James Sullivan. James Sullivan was a real American patriot. Or maybe I should say he was a real American jingoist. Sullivan was the one who wanted to use these Olympic Games as a showcase for American athletic excellence. He wanted to run laps around the rest of the world and demonstrate American dominance. But then no one else came to these games, so he had to come up with a different idea. James Sullivan came up with an idea, and this idea just might be the most unfortunate moment in Olympic sport history and American sport history. James Sullivan came up with something called Anthropology Days. Okay, remember, these Olympic Games were part of that 1904 World's Fair. Well, one of the exhibits at this fair, and I'm not kidding here, they had at this fair what was essentially a human zoo. This was a collection of exhibits in which so-called primitive people from around the world, and that's the word that was used by the fair organizers, primitive. 
They had people from around the world living in pens where they could be observed by American fairgoers. You know, exhibits like this human zoo were actually pretty common at the turn of the 20th century, not just in the United States. And the idea behind them was this. By displaying these peoples, the exhibits were meant to suggest the superiority of the fairgoers. I mean, in this instance, it was look at those people in their straw huts and animal skin loincloths, and look how civilized we Americans are by contrast. There were people from Central Africa, people back then that were described as pygmies. There were indigenous people from the United States and Mexico. There were Syrians and Hawaiians. Many of these people were from lands that had recently been conquered by the United States military. So we might think of these human beings almost as trophies from that conquest. One group of people stands out here, I think. The Igorots from the Philippines. At that very moment, 1904, the American military was pacifying the Philippines in the aftermath of the Spanish-American War. And the Americans who came to the fair, they were especially interested in the Igorots. And that's because they heard a story that the Igorots ate dogs. It turns out that back in the Philippines, the Igorots rarely ate dog meat, but it was not unheard of. It was actually considered a rare delicacy of theirs. But then the story got out that the Igorots were dog eaters. So the city of St. Louis, they provided the Igorots with a supply of 20 dogs per week, 20 stray dogs per week. And the fair organizers, they called the Igorot village Dogtown. And just so you know, it was at this fair that a new American food fad emerged. A German immigrant, now living in St. Louis, he took the traditional German bratwurst he placed it in an open bun, and in honor of the Igorots, he called it the hot dog. That's where it comes from. So now you know. Anyway, you are probably wondering what any of this has to do with the Olympics. Here we go. Well, these exhibits were at the fair. This was bad enough. But then the American sportsman, James Sullivan, he had his idea. James Sullivan firmly believed that the white American athlete was at the top of the human hierarchy in, in both brains and brawn. And he was going to be denied now the opportunity to conclusively prove that because barely anyone else was showing up at his games. So he thought, why not prove white American athletic superiority by demonstrating the athletic inferiority of these non-white, non-American peoples? Let's have them play sports. And the anthropologists from the nearby university, they can study them while they do. And so that's what the anthropology days were. They were the anthropological and popular viewing of these people from around the world competing in both Olympic and non-Olympic events. Let me give you a sense of how poorly thought out the anthropology days were. They asked the competitors to play water polo, but many of them got to the pool and refused to jump in. Many of them, like the Native Americans from the Southwest, they didn't know how to swim. These people from around the world, they were asked to compete in sports they had never seen before. And so they did the high jump, poorly. They threw the discus and the javelin, poorly. 
The 100-meter dash was chaos, with so many languages spoken. They had a hard time getting everyone set. And then the starting gun went off and frightened some of the runners. And then none of the runners knew they were supposed to break through the tape at the end. They all ducked under it. It was a farcical experiment. But here was the conclusion as printed in the official report of the St. Louis Games. Quote, The representatives of these savage and uncivilized tribes proved themselves inferior athletes. This was the scientific assessment. And the events confirmed James Sullivan's hypothesis, I suppose. I mean, yep, those so-called savages could not play a proper game of tennis or, or throw the discus as far as a white man. I mean, never mind that they had never seen a tennis racket or a discus in their life. But if playing skilled and agile tennis is your definition of what makes someone civilized, well then, these people were uncivilized. So the anthropology days were a disaster. They were a cruel farce masquerading as sport. And that's the way I want to describe the 1904 Olympic marathon as well. A cruel farce masquerading as sport. This was one of the all-time great Olympic fiascos from start to finish. Here's how the marathon played out in 1904. The race was scheduled for just under 25 miles. So the marathon was not officially made a 26-mile, 385-yard event until four years later, 1908. So 25 miles. Although one of the runners actually did run 26 miles, and that's because he had to run an extra mile while being chased by a stray dog. This gives you a sense of the craziness that's to come. This marathon was basically the Hunger Games. First of all, the race took place in the middle of the day on August 30th. It's hot in St. Louis in August. Estimates place the heat index, temperature plus humidity on that day, at 125 degrees. And even though it was blazing hot and humid, there were only two water stations, one at the six-mile mark and one at mile 12. And that's because James Sullivan was in charge of the marathon planning. And James Sullivan had another great idea. He decided to do a little research on what he called purposeful dehydration. What would happen if marathoners had almost no water? Sullivan would be arrested if he did that today. And then making it even worse, the marathon route was a collection of dusty roads. You know, automobiles chugged alongside the runners, kicking up dust and suffocating them. Most of the victims, or I'm sorry, I mean competitors, they were middle distance runners, men who had never run an actual marathon in their lives. Now, my favorite, and the guy I'm rooting for, because as you know, I don't play that game and just root for the American. I'm rooting for a Cuban mailman named Felix Carvajal. A couple weeks before the race, Carvajal took a steamship from Havana, Cuba to New Orleans. He disembarked and promptly lost all his money in a craps game. And so he walked the 700 miles to St. Louis. Carvajal shows up at the starting line on this sweltering hot day, and he's wearing a long sleeve shirt, long dark pants, a beret, and a pair of clunky boots. One of his fellow runners took pity on him found a pair of scissors and at least cut off his trousers at the knee. 
And I got to say, Carvajal did okay. He didn't win, but despite slowing down to chat with spectators, despite stopping to pick apples from an orchard, rotten apples which made him vomit, and despite taking a nap during the race, a nap, he finished fourth. He almost meddled. I love this guy. If I ever get a tattoo on my arm, it will be a tattoo of Felix Carvajal. In the end, the marathon turned out to be between two Americans. I mean, almost all the other competitors were Americans, but two Americans in particular. Their names were Fred Lortz and Thomas Hicks. These guys were actual trained long distance runners, but they were struggling with the conditions as well. A few miles in, Hicks, Thomas Hicks, he was in the lead, but he was suffering. I mean, it was hot and he desperately wanted water. His coaches instead, they gave him a mix of whiskey, egg whites, and strychnine. Strychnine in small doses has an amphetamine-like effect, and it was used as an athletic stimulant back then. I mean, Hicks was basically doing crystal meth. And so exhausted and poisoned, Hicks begins to fade. But don't give up on him yet. Also suffering was Fred Lortz. At the nine-mile mark, Lortz started cramping terribly. And so Lortz, well, he did the smart thing. He quit. He gives up running, and he waves down one of the accompanying automobiles. He says, take me to the finish line. So he gets in the car, and he's waving at spectators and fellow runners as they drive on. But then after riding in this automobile for 11 miles, and I will repeat that, after riding in this automobile for 11 miles, Lortz suddenly thinks to himself, hey, I feel pretty good. So he hops out of the car and he starts running toward the finish. And lo and behold, Fred Lortz was the first to enter the stadium and cross the finish line, though he had only run 14 of the 25 miles. But the crowd, they didn't know this. They roared. They were ecstatic. An American had won the marathon. Lortz was basking in their cheers. Alice Roosevelt, the daughter of the president, Teddy Roosevelt, she was just about to put a laurel wreath on Fred Lortz's head when someone came forward and said, I just saw that dude riding in a car. Just like that, the cheers turned to booze and Fred Lortz was disqualified. So now it's the other American, Thomas Hicks. Remember him? Here he comes. Sort of. As Hicks neared the finish line, he was so dehydrated, he was hallucinating. He had no idea where he was, babbling incoherently. The rat poison didn't help either, I'm sure. His trainers, they held him up, one on each side, and they dragged him across the finish line. Thomas Hicks was the winner, gold medal, USA. Though a new rule was made right then that said competitors could not be touched or assisted in any way in the marathon. And this rule was going to come into play in some future events. In the end, only 14 of the 32 men who started the 1904 St. Louis purposeful dehydration marathon finished the race. And the conditions were so brutal that the winning time was almost three and a half hours, so 30 minutes slower than previous Olympic marathons. So St. Louis 1904, the first Olympics in the United States, it was a fiasco. And here's the cherry on top. 
as bad as it was for those who were told to participate in the anthropology days, and as bad as it was for those poor heatstroke marathoners, it was even worse for the water polo players. Within six months of their Olympic competition ending, four Olympic water polo players were dead. They contracted typhoid from the lagoon where they played their water polo matches. It turns out this lagoon, it was also the body of water where all the animal waste from the fair exhibits was being dumped. And by August, when the water polo event occurred, the lagoon was a festering pool of bacteria and disease. This is American sport. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode of American Sport and want to learn more, visit our website, americansportpodcast.com. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, share, and give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. American Sport was created by me, Matt Andrews, and is an original podcast from Trailblazer Studios, executive produced by Katie Roan, co-produced by Casey Helmick and Aurelia Belfield. You can find American Sport wherever you get your podcasts.